listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. It's almost election time, and that means a lot of people are putting in really long hours this week and weekend doing last-minute get-out-the-vote work, longer hours than campaign workers already put in on a normal day. We talked to the vice president of the Campaign Workers Guild about the new push to unionize campaign staff and put some limits around those long hours. We're also going to talk about the rights of transgender workers as trans people are once again in the crosshairs of the Trump administration, which seems to have found its energy for another round of the shock and awe they tried to push in their first 100 days. But first, the news. Everything is horrifying these days, so I'm looking out for good news anywhere I can get it. And this week I've got some for you that involves labor and the ongoing struggle to get governments to take climate change seriously. Specifically, it involves the Spanish government, led by the Socialist Party and backed by the further left Podemos Party, cutting a 250 million euro deal with unions to close privately owned coal mines in the country and offer miners a variety of policies for a just transition. Those policies will include early retirement for miners over age 48, which is about 60% of the miners covered by the deal, along with jobs and environmental restoration work in their communities and retraining programs for green jobs. Montserrat Mir, the Spanish Confederal Secretary for the European Trades Union Congress, told The Guardian the just transition model could be applied elsewhere. Spain can export this deal as an example of good practice. We have shown that it's possible to follow the Paris Agreement without damage to people's livelihoods. We don't need to choose between a job and protecting the environment. It is possible to have both, end quote. Of course, Spain's mining industry was not a major force in the country anymore. There are about a 1,000 miners covered by this deal, and there are a few hundred miners in publicly owned mines that will be negotiating their own deal. But still, we learned in the last presidential race in our country that the coal mining communities are often left behind with devastated environments, devastated bodies when the extraction is done. And this model of investing in just transition and partnering with the workers and their unions to do so is actually, gasp, pretty common sense. So we hope to hear more stories like this one soon. LexisNexis is a major media hub that zips legal information and breaking news around the world electronically, but now its newsfeed could be paralyzed by its own staff as the result of a long-standing deadlock over contract talks that have stalled for two years after the workers first voted to unionize. The staffers work for its legal information outlet, Law360, one of the many more established digital news ventures in an increasingly competitive and volatile media marketplace. The Union Writers Guild of the Communications Workers of America announced this week that workers voted 141 to 11 to authorize a work stoppage. Leader Juan Carlos Rodriguez accused the company of, quote, dragging its feet on negotiations. According to Bloomberg, reporters say that management has been intransigent on job security issues, along with holiday benefits. And the company has been extraordinarily tight-fisted, even as it profits heartily from a global news network worth roughly $39 billion. Writers Guild, which represents many other newly unionized digital outlets, such as HuffPost, Vice, and Gizmodo, has also been reaching out to Law360 subscriber base to get support from law firms that support the organization currently. This isn't the first time that they've walked out. They had two previous walkouts, Bloomberg reports, in order to help advance the contract talks. But tensions have been on the rise ever since the company first voted overwhelmingly to unionize after a heavy anti-labor campaign waged by the company's executives. 
Since I'm on the what workers can do about climate change front today, I also wanted to talk about the latest front in the teacher strike wave, or should I say almost strike since the teachers in East Baton Rouge, Louisiana, were ready to walk off the job for a one-day action on Halloween to protest the tax exemption that ExxonMobil, yes, that ExxonMobil, was asking the city for. But when ExxonMobil pulled its request, the teachers and other school employees postponed their action too. Once again, this action pitted teachers against extractive industries that are extensively subsidized by the state. Louisiana is an oil and gas state, and ExxonMobil is the largest taxpayer in East Baton Rouge Parish, which is the equivalent of a county elsewhere in the country. So yet again, teachers are challenging an extractive corporation to pay its taxes and contribute to funding public schools. On one hand, oil companies can certainly continue to exist while paying a reasonable amount in taxes. These challenges from educators in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and now Louisiana are not really an existential threat to their existence. On the other hand, it's a sign of a shift in power that teachers and school employees in one parish in Louisiana managed to make one of the world's largest corporations that, let's not forget, recently contributed an executive to Trump's cabinet, though it kind of would be easy to forget Rex Tillerson since he served for such a short time. This shift in power is noteworthy not just for what it means for short-term school funding, but for the chances to wring bigger concessions, the type necessary to stave off, you know, catastrophic climate change, from these same oil companies. A school employees coalition, which like earlier strikes, reaches across several unions, includes the East Baton Rouge Association of Educators and the East Baton Rouge Federation of Teachers, as well as Service Employees International Union Local 21 and the East Baton Rouge Chapter of Louisiana School Bus Operators Association, as well as the faith-based group Together Baton Rouge, which has led the fight to change the state's decades-old industrial tax exemption program, or ITEP. Also, like other recent actions, the coalition is mostly focused on increasing pay for school employees who haven't had a raise since 2008, you know, 10 years. But they are also calling for smaller class sizes, better technology, new school buses, updated school buildings, and early childhood education. Their walkout is suspended for the moment, but it is still possible that it could happen. According to a statement, the members of the Support Our Educators Coalition are postponing the walkout plan for October 31st permanently if the exemption requests do not return, temporarily if they are placed on a subsequent agenda. In another corner of the digital sphere, workers at Google staged an unprecedented worldwide walkout to protest its treatment of sexual harassment issues. The action was sparked by the discovery that the company had historically papered over sexual harassment allegations against male executive staff at Google's umbrella company, Alphabet. Though they were ultimately dismissed, the New York Times reported that not only did they keep silent about the complaints that had been made about them, but in some cases, they even let them go with a massive golden parachute worth millions of dollars. So-called exit packages smacked of both a corporate cover-up and a workplace culture of misogyny and unaccountability. The workers who walked out for a short time on Thursday demanded greater transparency in the reporting of incidents of sexual abuse, as well as an end to the company's use of private arbitration to settle cases of sexual assault and harassment. These agreements effectively force many workers to stay silent about the case under a confidentiality agreement, aka a gag order. The move reflects growing unrest among Silicon Valley workers, mainly younger professionals who have progressive values, about the ethics questions surrounding the tech industry, both in how they treat workers and how they operate in the wider world, especially when it comes to our political sphere. 
The action, which stretches from San Jose to Singapore, reportedly involves around 1,500 staffers, mostly women, many who were shocked to discover that one of the creators of Android, Andy Rubin, had left quietly with a $90 million exit package, even though he had a harassment claim on his record that the company had deemed credible. More broadly, the action reflects a growing sense of rebellion and militancy in this young workforce, who are seeking to bring the management more in line with the liberal values that the industry supposedly champions in its marketing campaigns. As product marketing manager Claire Stapleton put it to the Times, Google's famous for its culture, but in reality, we're not even meeting the basics of respect, justice, and fairness for every single person here, close quote. In recent months, workers at Amazon, Google, and Microsoft have organized protest campaigns demanding transparency about the company's shadowy deals with federal government operations. Workers have been particularly concerned about contracts with Pentagon and Homeland Security that seek to enhance surveillance and AI capabilities for federal security agencies. Workers at Uber, meanwhile, have protested over misogyny and pervasive gender discrimination in the corporate hierarchy. And many have attributed the overall lack of gender and racial diversity in Silicon Valley to pernicious inequality in the corporate ranks that privileges white male entrepreneurs above other workers of color. Meanwhile, labor activists and the blue-collar and service workers that serve Silicon Valley have been pressuring the industry's leading tech firms to treat its frontline workers better. They're helping to unionize cafeteria, janitorial, and transportation staff in order to raise wages and working conditions in what is to be the future of our digital economy. After years of generating astronomical profits on world-changing technology, workers are now feeling more empowered to make tech the democratic social force it has the potential to be. The protests today are all part of a broader movement to make the jobs of the digital future fair for all, online and in the real world. A few weeks ago, the New York Times revealed that the White House is considering a memorandum recommending a drastic redefinition of gender and sexual identity in the regulations of health and human services. It referred to sex as, quote, a person's status as male or female based on immutable biological traits identifiable by or before birth. In addition to this extremely rigid and anti-science view of gender and sex, it also proposed adhering to the, quote, sex listed on a person's birth certificate as originally issued unless rebutted by reliable genetic evidence, close quote. The memo's language drew widespread condemnation of its regressive understanding of both science and gender and its dangerous implications for civil rights as well as privacy. But the reality is that while the proposal is a major legal attack on trans and gender nonconforming people's civil rights, the rollbacks on those rights have been underway since Trump took office. Pushed by the religious right and hyper-conservative political advisors, the community has already been targeted by many executive orders that have rolled back or blocked Obama-era measures for protecting transgender people from discrimination in the military, in schools, public programs, and private workspaces. The latest memo targets health and educational institutions under Title IX of the Civil Rights Act, but it folds into a wider agenda to limit the scope of federal civil rights law overall. A parallel component of the law, Title VII, relates to workplace rights, and that is where some of the key battles are currently being fought out in the courts and in Congress. I spoke with Greg Nevins of Lambda Legal about the wider implications of Trump's anti-LGBTQ agenda. What are your thoughts on 
sort of how this might change the situation on the ground for trans people, especially with respect to things like workplace rights. There are things that that affect you uh, can affect you on a day to day basis because just the federal government is basically saying we disagree that you have rights and in order to go to court you you know you'll have to enforce them yourself. Um, I mean that has that can have a, a real world effect on things. I mean you know if the federal government is viewing you know you're being consigned to the wrong restroom as a problem you know and and trying to help you with that it's it makes it a lot easier than if they're arguing that oh the, the school district has a right to do that or if. Uh, the Department of Justice decides whether or not to uh, bring a uh, discrimination case against a state government or a local government. You know, you file a, you file a charge with the EOC, and the EOC makes that call if it's a private employer. But you know, and and they don't. You know, not not many cases are you know, are filed by the EEOC or DOJ. But but you know, this basically says. Hey, if you're a state, if you're a public employee for a state or local government, you, we will not be there on uh, to to take a discrimination case on your behalf if you're transgender or and actually if you're LGBT. In terms of the prospects now for something like the Equality Act, which actually like affirmatively establishes uh, the rights of of LGBTQ people, um, you know, under federal law. And does what you know lawmakers are supposed to do, rather than just the courts. Um, do you, do you feel like this actually diminishes prospects for that, or or perhaps boosts them because people really feel like there there is increasingly you know less possibility of relief through the courts. For the most part, when it comes to things like employment and and um, education and housing. There are two different ways to the promised land of non-discrimination protections. One is some, something like the Equality Act, which which gets you know which, which takes care of it and, and does it in a definitive and explicit way that you know can't be misunderstood. And the other way is to get the courts to interpret existing law the way they should have all along and say that oh that that this is is not okay. And and now there's an exception to that. I mean, at least one of, of note, which is that the Civil Rights Act, that uh, the Title II, that covers public accommodations, doesn't cover sex discrimination. So there's um, there's nothing I can do. Um, I mean, so if, if the courts all rule resoundingly that when the you know in federal law when it says discrimination based on sex, that means that covers anti-LGBT discrimination. Well, that won't that won't protect. People from discrimination against, say, a um, uh, let's see, I think I, I think a restaurant is covered, but like, like for instance, retail stores aren't even covered at all by the uh, by the Civil Rights Act. So that part, that's kind of the weak link, and and so that we, so this, so the Equality Act is great because it, right. it, I mean it takes it takes care of everything, but there shouldn't be a tension between pursuing you know both paths to the goal that you seek, and the you know the only issue is that the courts have tried to use the mere fact of you're going to Congress against you in the in the courts. So it's like, well, uh, you know, if, if you you wouldn't be asking for it if it was already in the law. So and it's like, well, we're trying to do uh, two things, which is to say that courts that thought it wasn't in the law 15 years ago when they weren't asking the right question got it wrong. And, we're, and we but there's a process for getting courts to overrule themselves. And it's it is a an arduous one. And um, we've done it twice in the past two years, and we're trying to get more uh, circuit courts to say, hey, you know, we really didn't get this right. But in the meantime, if if you know, if Congress wants to do its job, that would take care of it like that. And so pursuing both shouldn't be inconsistent, and, and um, they call it the belt and suspenders approach. Like, you really want to make sure your pants are hiked up, you do both. It seems a little, you know, but it's, it's the Equality Act is a is a very good thing. And the only thing I caution people is that 
I, I just don't like people saying like, oh, it's the only solution or it's like, oh, you know, we have to get it's like it, that is absolutely like the ideal solution. And it would be that would be great. It's been tried. <laughs> um, and, right. Yeah. And, and, and I was right. going to say, I mean, the, the Equality Act would would that also extend protections based on race and other things as well to like, say, retail accommodations? Yes. If you were to uh, have have Mitch McConnell shepherd that through the Senate and, and President Trump sign, it would be a great day. So, you know, the Senate did uh, pass ENDA overwhelmingly in 2013. You know, it was like they had double digit Republican votes and it was like it was like two to one vote. And but, you know, that was it didn't didn't even get a hearing in the House. And so it's you know, I mean, that that process is just it's uh, you know, it's a challenge. But I mean, both processes are 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 laborious but it's i mean basically we should we got to fight on all fronts you know we have to pursue whatever angle we need to uh to do to get to um you know just prevent discrimination from happening and it's um it'd be wonderful to have a, a brand new shiny law that that nobody can misunderstand but we there's still an existing law that uh, protects us and it, it's just a matter of getting the, more courts to recognize that increase the momentum that we've had in recent years on that front And that was Greg Nevins of Lambda Legal. And here's Mara Keisling of the National Center for Transgender Equality on what's at stake in everyday life at work, school, and in public places for the trans community. The the immediate effect is, I don't want to say it's limited, but this administration has already said they won't enforce civil rights laws, right? So they're they're not enforcing civil rights laws. And and the, the primary way that this memo, which we haven't seen, sounds, is them saying, yet again, um, we are going to advocate our responsibilities to enforce civil rights laws. But, you know, we're, we're seeing things like just yesterday, possibly Tuesday, but in the last couple of days, in the Harris funeral case, uh, the Department of Justice weighed in on behalf of the discriminator instead of on behalf of the transgender woman. A judge in the Sixth Circuit clearly said, the funeral home was discriminating based on sex, and now the Justice Department is joining in and saying, oh, no, 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 transgender people aren't protected by sex discrimination. So um, Trump is already sort of doing in practice what this um, memorandum seems to say more explicitly. Yeah, and, and, you know, we haven't seen the memorandum. We've been hearing rumors about it for months, uh, and I'll tell you, it is. It is not an easy thing to find. So, so it's, it's hard to analyze it completely without seeing it. But a lot of it was quoted in the Times article and implied in the Times article. Uh, but that's what we have to go on now. I mean, we also have sort of differing opinions coming down from things like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and other agencies. And so it seems like the memo, if it is what people say it is, then it would kind of conflict with, say, the EEOC's definition. And so what what happens then? And, and I guess which of these kind of carry more weight in our day-to-day lives? So it's a complex ecosystem. Everybody in the ecosystem except the Trump administration has really settled on the idea that sex discrimination laws protect trans people. And that was Greg Nevins of Lambda Legal and Mara Keisling of the National Center for Transgender Equality. 
In case you missed it, it's election season, and if you're like us, you're getting revved up for the midterms. Many other workers across the country are getting revved up as well, including the workers on campaigns. I talked to Meg Riley of the Campaign Workers Guild. It's a new initiative to unionize workers who work on election campaigns across the country. It aims to organize the organizers to improve working conditions on campaigns, to promote better schedules, to promote decent access to benefits, and to help seed sustainable careers in politics. I talked about their work this election season and the progress that they've made, regardless of who wins or loses on election day. What have you been up to in the lead up to the midterms? And how have you been keeping busy as both a union and as a force in American politics? We have been keeping really busy. Of course, there are a lot of campaign workers right now working. And in fact, just today we announced two more coordinated campaigns. So the the statewide Democratic Party sort of arms of the on the ground field program. So we launched in February, and since then we have, let me think of the numbers, let's see, I think we have 23 campaigns of like individual candidates that have had contracts, and then three coordinated campaigns, and then two organizations that are permanent organizations. So I think overall that's 28 contracts, could be wrong on my math, but 28 contracts since February of this year, so that's probably like 10 months. So that's obviously been a lot. Uh, there are tons of people writing us still looking to unionize. Um, And I think this is a great year for it. I mean, everyone is really focused on what this political cycle means. And I think that there's just a sense of, you know, people are talking more about income inequality and health care. And with that, you know, the people talking about that at the doors where the campaign workers are realizing, like, we don't have that. Like, we don't have good pay. We don't even have health care. And I think kind of everything coalesced at once, and it's a really good moment for it. Yeah. Can you talk about sort of the origins of this movement to organize campaign workers? Has it been a longstanding effort? Is this a relatively new area of organizing? And with that, talk about sort of the unique needs um, of this workforce, because it is a fairly, I guess you could say it's an, it's an unusual job, or maybe it's one that we often think of as perhaps temporary or seasonal and, and maybe not something that um, is, a you know, a, a one of the key targets of uh, the labor movement generally. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 100% people think of it as temporary and seasonal. Like these are temp workers who just go out for two months, work, and then they go back to their, you know, parents' spare bedrooms or something, and they don't need health insurance because they're on the parents' plan. Like there's a lot of perceptions around campaign work that it's a temporary thing that kids, you know, in quotes, do once they graduate for college for a few months before they find a more permanent job. And that's just not the truth. There are uh, there are absolutely like career campaign workers. Um, there are not many who last like, you know, 10 or 20 cycles because it's such a, a high burnout level. But it absolutely is skilled labor. And it has been neglected by the, the labor movement, I think, because it seems to be a difficult area to organize, maybe not worth um, the movement's time. Not quite sure. But um, in terms of what has happened in the past, I know that people have been talking about unionizing campaign workers for a really long time. It's always been sort of poo-pooed and said, like, that's just not possible based on, you know, these the amount of hours that we work in a week, which is generally like 80-hour weeks and um, the sort of the urgency of it. So it's been talked about over beers for probably decades. And I think um, this last time, the way that we started is, a bunch of us worked on the Bernie 2016 campaign, stayed in touch after, and then 
a couple of us, like I think it was literally four of us, started talking about what a union would look like. And for about a year, we had weekly conference calls, figuring it out, and then build, you know, built a plan and got other people involved and sort of built this large association and then got a contract and have gone on from there. So I think that, you know, for us who used to work on Bernie, which was actually by all accounts a pretty good campaign to work on, but I think it was just the timing and being kind of sick of the same old, same old. What do you think it is about perhaps the 2016 election or the subsequent fallout or this particular election season that has sort of charged the issue in terms of getting, um, you know, this sector of, of, you know, campaign work uh, to kind of, you know, realize its values um, in its own workplace? Yeah, there's probably a lot of answers to that. Um, One that I think is probably largely true is that campaign workers are often told to put things off because what's most important is getting the candidate elected. And so, you know, if you talk about unionizing on a campaign, you're really met with derision of like, you don't really care about the candidate getting elected and you're, you're being selfish and so on. And the most important thing, right, is to get a candidate elected. And that can feel very true when we have candidates, you know, senators voting on Supreme Court nominees. Of of course, there is a real life um, effect to that. I think it's very possible that in 2016, after people put their all into um, a really, really big election and, you know, sacrificed a lot. They sacrificed time with their families. They, like, ran their cars into the ground. You know, they slept on couches for months. They didn't have health insurance. They earned less than minimum wage because they were working 80 hours a week, you know, on a on a really low salary. Um, and then after all of that, to have the candidates, well, many of the candidates not win, probably was a wake-up call for some people, at least I know some people I know, to say, like, you know, why am I setting myself on fire right now? this isn't actually effective. And like, in the meantime, I'm burning out. Like I'll say for myself, I I burned out. Um, I wasn't interested in working on campaigns. And every time that happens, we see our coworkers leave and we see, you know, the the workforce, which is um, definitely a specific set of skills. Like we see those people leave and then we bring in new people. So I think um, just like the seeing the turnover and the burnout that creates and also seeing that it's not really worth like sacrificing all of this for, a chance at a candidate, and if they lose, you know, what what have you gained? Yeah, um, other than a few months of uh, you know sub minimum wage salaries and um, and you know, lots like of couch surfing. Yeah, couch surfing and and like you've accrued debt in the meantime. You know, like you have to pay off your student loan debt. We're all broke from student loans, so yeah. I mean, I I think that up until then, maybe people had that mentality of like it's it's a means to an end and. People are just frankly fed up with it. And like I said earlier, too, healthcare is a big one. I mean, healthcare is only being talked about more and more every single day. And so I think being able to say, hey, did you know that most campaign workers actually aren't offered health insurance, like at all, has been a really big talking point for people. A lot of people didn't know that or didn't realize it. But, and that is changing somewhat, um, probably because campaigns are afraid of the backlash. But, you know, health insurance as well. People just cannot afford to work on campaigns and pay their own health insurance. It's just not financially possible. You know, in terms of just creating a sustainable workforce, um, do you have any reflections on um, how the improvement of working conditions for campaign workers um, could ultimately help, you know, bolster a lot of these groups that are out there campaigning? I mean, I I imagine that it it can only help if um, you have you know, skilled workers who are able to turn these into sustainable jobs and they can last more than one season, right? 
Oh, completely. A- absolutely. I mean, campaign work is a, is a specific skill. It's not just knocking on doors. It's knocking on doors and being able to convince someone in this like, extremely divisive climate to, to potentially change their mind. Like that is such a, an amazing skill that we all need to have and like nurture it and hire people onto campaigns who can be persuasive. Like, that's not something that anyone can do. And instead of, you know, respecting that and honoring that with fair wages and health care and, you know, a safe place to stay at night, we're burning out these canvassers. Like canvassers, for example, on campaigns are usually the most marginalized group. They're out there for eight or 10 hours a day, no matter the conditions, you know. So the more we can keep those people in these organizations or on campaigns who have these skills, um, the way better off these organizations will be. In addition to that, I mean, people just work harder and better when they're happier, right? And when they have time to sleep and like rest up and eat good meals that aren't just cold pizza that a volunteer brings in. So, like we all know, and I'm sure you know as well, that like productivity does not necessarily increase with more hours. You know, that's the, it kind of falls off after a while. And I think these 80 hour, 90 hour work weeks are in large part not as effective as having a well-rested, happy workforce working for 20 less hours a week. Yeah. And it also might help you uh, knock on more doors and get more votes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's what the folks who have, um, you know, unionized their campaigns, like some of the campaign workers have absolutely said to us that since they unionized, like, they, they really feel like more committed to their job, they feel more valued. I mean, of course, it's a two way street. Like if you feel valued by your employer, you're going to want to stick around and like, give them everything you can, right? Like, we all probably have worked in jobs where you're kind of just like throwing up your hands and like, why am I doing this? So we, that's absolutely something we've heard from multiple people who have unionized so far this cycle. Because we live in an age when, you know, labor issues and partisan politics seem so intertwined, does your organizing work tell us anything about the partisan affiliations of the campaigns that your workers work for? And and is that ever, I mean, is that ever an interference, I guess, or does it create tension, I guess, when you're trying to organize, you know, organize labor as um, historically extremely loyal to the Democratic Party? Right. Um, how do Democratic candidates or even Republican candidates respond to these kinds of initiatives? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a push and pull. Um, usually it's more behind the scenes. I think people are, are afraid of overtly, um, you know, pushing back in that way because they know that how, how bad that looks. But there are definitely some candidates who, you know, if they were giving their workers a hard time at the bargaining table, refusing to move, refusing to meet to bargain, refusing to you know, consider any proposal we have on the table. There's definitely been times when we've reached out to local allies or who we thought would be local allies and they've they've not been responsive because they don't want to get involved because they endorsed that candidate. Or, you know, two years ago that candidate in the state house like sponsored a bill that was in the benefits of the labor. Like whatever whatever it may be, we definitely see some of that. I would say not on an enormous scale. But I mean they're so incredibly interconnected that of course, there's going to be some conflict there. With Republicans, we haven't had any Republican workers reach out to unionize. We are nonpartisan, of course, so if they did, we would treat them all the same. I think it's probably a function of you know their political values. More so than, <laughs> right, right. More so than like anything else, you know. Um, but certainly we're not like just for Democratic candidates. And I think we've had a couple of nonpartisan candidates and, of course, would welcome any any workers from on any party, um, but we haven't had any Republicans reach out yet, which is what it is. But it would it would um, be kind of exciting to see 
how all that would turn out as well. It'd be certainly different than bargaining with the Democrats. I mean, you bargain with the Democrats on your side, what you have is the fact that often they're allies with labor, and so they're either courting a labor endorsement or have gotten one. And so there's a certain pressure there of they don't want to seem like they are actually hypocrites, right? Um, I don't think that would be the case with a lot of Republican candidates at the table. So it would be certainly a different dynamic than what we've seen so far, but we would just roll with it and make it work. Right. Well, speaking of just, you know, the final home stretch of this midterm election, now that you're moving into sort of post-election mode, what do you conclude about the gains that you've made this season and how do you plan to make those gains sustainable um, sort of in the off-season, I guess? Uh, you know, what do, what do campaign workers and their organizers do after election day? Sure. Yeah. So we are um, essentially like a hiring hall model. So we have different dues levels for folks who are actively working on campaigns that are covered by a CWG contract or for campaign workers who are sort of in between gigs or taking a break or so on. So when folks pay that lesser dues amount, they get access to our job posting, which there are a lot of organizations that send us their job postings and any organization that has a CWG contract sends us their job postings, of course, um, in advance. So they get access to that. I mean, we're actually really excited for this little break uh, post-election because we have a a lot of exciting projects we want to work on, like um, we want to look at what health insurance will look like in a group pool. We want to do a lot of trainings for workers of keeping folks up to date on like Vote Builder or, you know, Act Blue, whatever else they might need training on. So we're talking about that. And then, of course, like the union is the members themselves. So we have hundreds of members at this point who have wanted to be involved but are actively working on campaigns so haven't been able to. So we have like dozens of people who are excited to help us like, um, you know, with our website or um, folks want to like build a database, right? Like there's so many people with so many skills that are excited to, to help out because we are an independent union and we're not affiliated with any international and we also are relatively new, of course. And so we have a lot of that sort of groundwork to, to work on. Um, we've obviously made really big strides in getting 28 contracts in, in less than a year. So, um, we really wanted to sit down and take a look at that and see, you know, what we did well, what we, we can continue to build on. And then, frankly, like we already have people from presidential campaigns um, reaching out or, or starting to. So I don't think it's going to be that big of a gap, actually, after this election, before the presidentials kick up. Right. I guess one of the maybe silver linings of our dreadful constant election cycles is that, you know, there's always work. Right. <laughs> um, right. Exactly. But um, and I guess in conclusion, I mean, um, you know, regardless of how these midterms shake out for your respective campaigns, um, there's been a lot of talk about workplace democracy um, and sort of confronting some of these real life political issues that happen, not just at the ballot box, but at work. So, um, you know, regardless of electoral outcomes, um, do you do you feel like the labor movement um, is sort of, I guess, entering new territory in terms of politicizing the workplace, for uh, lack of a better term? Uh, certainly for our workers. I mean, I mean, I'm, again, I'm sure that you know this, but unionizing is more than just what you get on the piece of paper that says you're going to be paid 3500 a month and you get, you know, overtime over 46 hours, whatever it may be. It's also about a sense of having a say in your workplace. And that is the number one thing that folks who've unionized have, have said is that they finally feel like they get to have a voice in workplace decisions. I mean, not always and not in every way. But unionizing shows that 
you get to have a seat at the table. And so I think that that has re- really reinvigorated a group of workers who, frankly, many of them are in their 20s. Many of them have never been in a union before. And so like the, the fact that folks are realizing that they get to act like this and have that say in their workplace is a really cool thing. And regardless of whether people stay in campaigns or move into something sort of on the periphery or, or totally leave the field whatsoever, once you've worked in a union shop and felt that feeling of having a say in your, your workplace, I think it stays with you and you you look to replicate that elsewhere. So regardless, any time that that happens, I think most of us are excited, right? So we get to you know spread the feeling of solidarity and of like what it feels like to be in a union. Um, across a whole big swath of people across the country is a pretty great opportunity. Yeah, and whether you win or lose an election, at least you can claim one key victory in your right. union in the election right, season. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of these workers really fought hard for that, so um, it's been a really big victory for many of them. That was Meg Riley, vice president of the Campaign Workers Guild. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. We haven't talked enough on this show about the migrant caravan that is making its way toward the U.S. and the attendant attempts to whip up anti-migrant hysteria, pump up the military presence on our already hyper-militarized border, drive racists to the polls, and use it all to spur desire for reactionary policies like ending birthright citizenship, which, we should remind you, was added to the Constitution explicitly to grant citizenship to formerly enslaved people. And so I wanted to take some time to talk about it now, because of course it is a labor issue, because all of these issues are intertwined, because Trumpism relies on the pretense of caring about the American working class while scapegoating workers who either remain in other countries or dare to try to come to this one. But workers in the U.S. are actually not, despite what corners of the media would like you to think, a monolithic block of white men who hate immigrants and love Trump. And in New Orleans, those workers are organizing to greet and support the migrant caravan. Jessica Williams at the New Orleans Advocate talked to some of them in a piece titled, New Orleans Honduran Community Prepares to Aid Migrant Caravan and Raise Consciousness. She writes, quote, with a population of more than 25,000, Hondurans are the largest Hispanic group in the New Orleans area. Their ties to the region stretch back to the early 1900s when United Fruit Company and Standard Fruit Company, now Chiquita and Dole, set up their headquarters in New Orleans and grew bananas in Honduras and other nearby countries for export to the U.S. Many more migrants flocked to the area to help rebuild homes and businesses devastated by Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and others, often unaccompanied children, came to the region in more recent years for the same relief from drug cartels and political turmoil now sought by those traveling in the caravan. More than 7,000 travelers are fleeing Central America's so-called Northern Triangle of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala in one of the largest groups to do so in years. The article connects the dots between the experiences of migrants who have been in the U.S. a while, who know exactly what it is that the caravan is fleeing, and the longer history of colonial and corporate power being exerted on Central America from the U.S., and it does so through the voices of workers who are organizing to support one another. Santos Canales, a Honduran native who has lived in the U.S. since 1999, told Williams, The thousands of people who are on that caravan, they are not making a choice to come on vacation. They are fleeing for their lives and they have no other choice, said Canales. It's very hard to do that sort of thing, and that's why we want to support them. 
But of course, the Trump administration and its avatar of the Confederacy, Jeff Sessions, have made it harder to do what the caravan members are trying to do, apply legally for asylum in the U.S. to escape violence at home. Sessions has said that the U.S. will no longer accept fears of gang violence or domestic abuse as as valid claims for asylum, even though we should note that Trump is hyping those very same fears as he hits the campaign trail with his most openly racist rhetoric yet, and that is really saying something. Talking about virile migrants, calling them gang members, and just for funsies, also implying that they are Middle Eastern terrorists, because one boogeyman, one racist boogeyman, isn't enough. So it's really worth not only spending some time thinking about what's happening there, but thinking about the people who are organizing to support the caravan when it arrives, people who don't have much to begin with but are willing to share. My pick for ARG this week is by Julianne Tibetan at In These Times. It's called One Way to Defend Transgender People from Trump's Attacks, Labor Unions. As you heard earlier in the podcast, Trump's latest effort to roll back the rights of transgender people in civic life is not just a threat to the LGBTQ community, but also a frontal assault on labor rights and civil rights more broadly. About half of the transgender population nationwide resides in states that lack special anti-discrimination protections for trans workers on top of what is afforded by the federal government, which is really not much at all. If the brutal policies that Trump is proposing now ultimately become law, they would subject transgender, gender nonconforming, and intersex individuals to loss of access to crucial public health programs, educational facilities, and losing overall what limited federal protections they had against workplace discrimination granted under the Obama administration. But while these laws are being reshaped to exclude transgender people in the workplace and in public life, There is one way to fight back outside of the legal system. You don't necessarily need to file a civil rights lawsuit or an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission claim to seek justice against abuse and discrimination at work if you've got a union. Tibetan writes, quote, If the proposal advances, one of the most immediate and robust forms of recourse for workers will be the leverage of organized labor. According to the LGBTQ labor nonprofit and AFL-CIO constituency group Pride at Work, union contracts are the only form of legal protection against employment discrimination for transgender people working in 33 states nationwide where it's currently legal to fire a transgender worker based on their gender identity. Union contracts, which are enforceable in all 50 states, can contain clauses that specifically address gender identity parity, close quote. So to fill in the gaps across the country for benefits that face many trans workers, defendant also notes, quote, union contracts can remove exclusionary language from insurance policies and expand what an insurance plan covers in terms of care related to a gender transition. It includes hormone treatment, gender confirmation surgery, and mental health care, close quote. So when you have a union engaged in a collective bargaining process with the aim of covering every worker represented at a shop, you no longer have to wage an individual battle to, say, enroll in the company health plan or get permission to take parental leave. Short of guaranteeing equal benefits at work, some unions have passed resolutions calling for transgender-inclusive health care as well, including SEIU and Unite Here. The hot-button issue that has dominated the public discourse, access to public facilities like restrooms, could also potentially be resolved through labor negotiations over rules that govern bathroom access and other accommodations for people who are outside of the traditional gender binary in public spaces. Today, the social barriers for trans workers are daunting. 
even aside from the Trump administration's regressive rollbacks and anti-discrimination protections, the reality is that trans people face much higher levels of extreme poverty overall and systematic employment discrimination, not to mention outright harassment and violence, both in the workplace and in everyday public life. And these indignities will not stop regardless of what the administration says or doesn't say. On the other hand, one upshot is that, according to 2015 surveys, union representation among trans workers is actually slightly higher than the national average, about 15%. Tibetan argues that, quote, while the fraction is slim, a symptom of decades of neoliberal legislation in the United States, it's possible for unions to leverage their power beyond the scope of the workplace, thus advocating for workers who aren't unionized. In other words, unions have the power and the responsibility to raise conditions across the workforce, to represent not only the material needs of their individual members, but to advocate for labor justice for all. And that all should be inclusive of everyone who works for a living and should cover not only bread and butter issues like equal pay, but the deficits in workplace democracy that have made transgender workers second-class citizens for generations. And if the goal of the Trump administration is to render transgender people legally invisible and cut off their access to democratic institutions by defining them outside the scope of civil rights law, unions are an alternative platform for their enfranchisement, at least at work. Unions can't undo bad policy, but when trans workers' rights are under attack, they can at least ensure that in their workplace, they've got someone in their corner. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. If you've got a bone to pick with an employer, if you are making a difference on gender parity policy at your workplace through your union, if you want to talk to us about being part of the Google walkout, get in touch with us on Twitter at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Good luck on election day and over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.